You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and go to the book of John. John chapter 7 is going to be this morning. John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you, in the seat in front of you, underneath there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. Get to John chapter 7. If you don't own a Bible, take that home as our gift to you. As you go to John chapter 7, we're going to cover the whole chapter of John chapter 7. As you're turning there, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. So so listen, if you think God's a legalistic judge, then you're going to spend your whole life in this performance trap of, I've got to live up to some standard to make sure God loves me. If if you think God is just this this kind of sky fairy and sprinkles love and blessing on everybody, then, then holiness and sanctification won't matter much to you. What you think about God is so important. In this chapter 7 here, we're going to meet a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different thoughts about who Jesus is. And more than just thoughts about Jesus, they have their own agendas about Jesus. We just sang that song, Make Him Room, and there's that line in that song I love where it talks about, I'm going to lay down my dreams for God's glory. That's that's an agenda. All of us have agendas. All of us have, have motivations, things that make us tick, right? For some, maybe you're motivated by health. I want to look good. I want to feel good. I want to be healthy. I I want to be active. And, and, And so you give attention to eating right, to going to the gym. And that's an agenda. That's a motivation. That's what you pursue. Some people, it's relational. I just want to be married. I want to have a family. And, and your life is geared towards that motivation. Or, or you have a family and you're like, I just want such a close relation with my kids. And you're motivated by that family life. Or maybe it's not family, maybe it's deep friendships. I just want to have meaningful friendships. For some, I want to be well-respected. For some, I want peace and order in my life. And so your schedule is so important. Your to-do list is is a motivator. For some, it's about comfort. Let let me just disengage. Let me find a a, a way that I can do things that make me happy. For some, it's it's financial. I, I want financial security. For some, maybe you're motivated by, I'm going to prove everybody who doubted me or hurt me, I'm going to prove them wrong, right? And so, so you pour yourself out into athletics or school or work. You know, they, they did a survey just recently of what's the number one thing that you go after. It, like, is it, is it tolerance? Is it love? Is it, is, it, is it service? The number one value that people hold in our culture right now, do you know what it is? It's autonomy. I want to do what I want to do. Nobody tell me any different. It's an agenda. All of us have agendas, things that motivate us, things that drive us. Now, here's the thing. All agendas aren't bad in and of themselves. A lot of these agendas I just talked about, these motivations are good things, but but when our agendas rule us, when they lead us, rather than being led by the Lord, it brings harm and chaos in our hearts and our lives and into the lives of those around us. So in this passage, we're going to see different groups of people that Jesus interacts with, all of them with different agendas that either cause them to be in conflict with Jesus or not want to follow him. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. 
because the Jews were seeking to kill him. When it says they're the Jews, it means the Jewish leaders. The leaders wanted to kill him. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem and he flips over tables and says, you guys aren't allowing the lost to come and hear about God. You're doing this wrong. Your religion is stopping people. He then he heals a person at the pools of Siloam. Guy who hadn't walked for 38 years, but he healed him on the Sabbath. He broke one of their list of rules where, where you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. And so now Jesus says, I'm going to stay away from that area where these people are trying to kill me. Look at verse 2. This is now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Feast of booths, it's, it's this, this celebration. Remember, coming out of chapter 6, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That, that would happen in the spring. This is now the fall, so it's months later, a new feast. They're now celebrating called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a feast where they would remember when they were wandering in the wilderness and how God would take care of them in the wilderness, and so they would celebrate that time. Here's what they'd actually do. They would leave their houses, they would make makeshift little tents, and they would live in the tents for those eight days, remembering, hey, we used to live like this, and God took care of us. For some of you, are like, that sounds like a pretty sweet celebration. Like, you love camping. You're like, I'll do that. I'll camp. Some of you are like, um, would sleep in a hotel equate for the same way of doing this, right? Now, some of you say you love camping. I've been camping with some of y'all. And as I'm setting up my tent and you roll in with this truck and a massive trailer, all right? When I was growing up, we didn't call living in a trailer camping. We called living in a trailer home, all right? All right, verse 3 and 4, it goes on. So that's the festival happening. He says, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, not even his brothers believed in him. So, so here you have this first group of people with an agenda. You have Jesus' brothers. These are Jesus' stepbrothers, right? So, so Jesus, Mary, his mom, God, his father, right? But Mary and Joseph had other sons and daughters, and at this moment here, they don't believe. Now, now, two of those brothers would be James and Jude. They wrote the book of James and the book of Jude. At this moment, they don't believe him. Here, here's something that for me is such a strong evidence that Jesus is God the Son. It's that his own brothers, James and Jude, believed in him. If you have a brother, how much would it take? Listen, if you have a brother, how much would it take for him to convince you that they're the Messiah, right? I love my brothers a lot, but if, if one of my brothers came up to me and said, behold, I'm like, yeah, no, no, I don't think so, right? James and Jude see Jesus die and rise again, and they believe. But here it says they don't believe him yet, and they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't you go and prove yourself? If you are the Messiah, why don't you go do more miracles? Why don't you go do them in Jerusalem? Stop hiding out here in Galilee. Go prove that you really are the Messiah. And I got to wonder if Jesus' brothers, as they're heading into Jerusalem for this feast of booze, if they're, they're actually scared that they're linked to Jesus. Like the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Jesus picking fights in the temple. And they're like, man, we have to go to Judea because the Old Testament law requires that we go to celebrate the Feast of Booze, but we're going to be in trouble because we're related to you. They're basically saying this, Jesus, you're not fitting my agenda. You're making my life very complicated. Why don't you prove who you are and make this much easier on me? Look what Jesus says to them in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And there's so much we could unpack in just those short verses, right? Listen, when you live, listen, if you live for Jesus, there will be pushback. Jesus said clearly, the world hated me. They're going to hate you too, right? If you're following me. Listen, if no one hates you, it might be because you're, you're going along to get along. I mean, think about our world today. How, how much would you stand out if you live for Jesus? The way you walk, the way you act. And Jesus saying here to his brothers, yeah, the world doesn't hate you because you don't follow me. The world hates me because I stand out. I think sometimes we find following Jesus hard because our agenda is, man, I just want to be liked. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. The Jewish leaders want to kill him. And he's saying, listen, I'm on a schedule to the cross. I am going on this mission, but my time isn't yet. It's not today. He has a mission. He's not about to cut it short. It goes on in verse 10. It says, but after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So, so Jesus does end up going, not in the way they wanted him to go, not on their agenda. He goes near the end of the feast. See, at the beginning of the feast, all the leaders and teachers would walk in and announce themselves. There'd be a lot of, of huge parties surrounding these teachers and leaders. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going for that. But he goes to the end when sacrifices are being made, when there's worship happening, and he goes quietly. And when he arrives, this next group now, who have an agenda about Jesus, show up. This time, it's not his brothers, it's the crowd. And their agenda is this, give us freedom, give us peace. Look at verse 11. It says, the Jews are looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Jewish leaders looking for Jesus, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So picture this. They're, they're all in Jerusalem for this festival, right? It would have included those people who Jesus had miraculously fed just the spring before, right? right? He fed the multitude of people. They're now in Jerusalem at the same time. The, remember, that group of people said, we want you to be king. If you're going to feed us like this, you be our leader. Now they're in Jerusalem where the Pharisees have power. And they don't, even want to, they don't even want to talk about Jesus openly. Why would they go from make him king to shh, don't talk about him? Because they wanted freedom and peace at any cost. Now, ultimately, they wanted freedom from Rome that was occupying Israel, but they were so driven by fear that they're going to tie themselves to whomever gives them that freedom and peace. It could be Jesus, sure. If you're going to do it, oh, Pharisees, now you're going to do it. They're like, I'm for Jesus if you'll accomplish this for me. If, if you're not going to accomplish my agenda, then I'm going to hang with the Pharisees because they've got the power right now. They'll get me what I want. Can you see why the crowd could move so quickly on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, here comes the Messiah, to just the week later saying, crucify him? Their agenda is what they're most loyal to. And, and their fear is driving this agenda. Listen, for you and me, every single day we have this choice that we wake up and we need to make, a fundamental choice. Am I going to live under the umbrella of the fear of people? Or am I going to live under the umbrella of a fear and a reverence and a trust in God. 
If you live under the fear of, of people, you're going to avoid anything hard. But if you live under the fear of God, you're going to do what's right regardless of the cost. If you live under the fear of man, you're going to think first and foremost, how, how does my actions, how will this affect my reputation? When you live under the fear of God, you think first and foremost, what about God's glory and his reputation? When you live under the fear of people, you're, you're going to live your life all for whatever brings safety and security at all costs. But when you live under the fear of God, you replace words like be careful with be strong and courageous. Here this crowd is so fearful they don't want to stand out. But, but here's the thing, church, listen. You can't make a difference in this world unless you are different. Are you hiding out? Are, are you one way with certain people and then another way with other people? And, and listen, listen, I, I think we get in this place because we're, we no longer see the good news as good news. The good news of the gospel has become okay news. Listen, if we're a church that's, that's under the fear of people, we're no longer wild-eyed radicals anymore. We're just nice people who go along, who get along. Radical Christianity, listen, radical Christianity isn't nice. It's, it's category smashing. It's, it's life Altering it, spread like wildfire through the first century. Why? Why? Because people were living their lives saying this is worth more than anything else. And the religious leaders and the powers in the first century found Christianity so dangerous. Man, I pray that at harvest we would have a faith that's considered dangerous by our, our predictable and monotonous and ridiculous culture. We see a final group here with an agenda. This time it's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and their motivation, their thing that drives them is power and influence. They want to kill Jesus because he poses a threat to their influence, to their power. People are following Jesus, and, and, and they're thinking, we've got to put an end to this. He's attacking our power and influence, and so their, their agenda actually puts them in opposition to Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he's never studied? They're like, hey, what school did he go to? Do you guys know him? I haven't seen him in any of our schools. It goes on, verse 16. So Jesus answered to them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He's saying this, hey, hey, listen up, religious leaders. If you knew God the Father, you would know me, God the Son. I'm not here to share my own words, Jesus is saying. I, I'm coming sharing the words of him who sent me to share the very word of God with you. Listen, this is why on Sunday mornings, we work our way through God's word verse by verse, book by book. I'm not just trying to share with you things I think about God. I want to share what God thinks. I, I don't want to stand up here and share my opinions with you. And if I do share an opinion, listen, it's just an opinion, right? Do I believe that God hates cats? Yes, <laughs> right? That's my opinion. <laughs> 
Listen, the reason we go verse by verse like we do through the book of John here, why we're taking the time to go through it verse by verse, why in our small groups it's like, hey, study the text before Sunday. Like, get your head into this and your heart wrapped around this. Why? Because I don't want to share with you my opinion. I don't want to say, hey, here are three tricks and, and tips on how to be a better version of you. Listen, I'm not that smart. What I want us to do is let's dig into God's word together. Why? Because I want us all to have this experience, this relationship with the God who wrote this book. The religious leaders have this agenda of power and influence, and Jesus now threatening that agenda. What what about you and me? How do we know when our agenda is, is impacting how we follow and pursue and love Jesus? When does our agenda become a problem like it did for these three groups? Because agendas are, aren't wrong in and of themselves, but when do they become a problem? Here's one way when our agendas mess with our relationship with Christ. My agenda is a problem when my timing takes first place. Go back to Jesus' brothers. What are they like? They're saying, hey, you need to do this. You need to go to Judea right now. You need to do miracles right now. You need to prove that you're the Messiah right now because that will make our lives easier. They didn't want to yield their agenda to Jesus. They wanted Jesus on their terms. Jesus, I need you to act now. Jesus, I need that relationship now. Jesus, you need to answer this prayer I have like right now. Like I need the stage in my life to be different right now. And what happens is we're so consumed with our agendas, our timing, our terms. We don't like the place that Jesus has us right now. It it leads us to, to worry, to frustration. It can eventually lead to bitterness. Worry is 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 not believing that God's gonna get things right. Not not trusting that God has the wisdom to know what's best in our life circumstances today. And what happens when our agenda takes first place is that we're tempted to worry, to fear, to bitterness. We're tempted to compromise. I mean, that's the crowd's problem, right? They're they're flip-flopping all the time. They're they're living their life on the fence. And if if Jesus gets me what I want, I'll do that. But if if he doesn't, I'm going to do something different. If it's hard, I'm out. I mean, how much of our gossip, how much of our our anger, our bitterness, our our selfishness, how much of our apathy and our greed and our dishonesty, how much of our hypocrisy or our lack of discipline is just a result of, of our hearts, us saying, Jesus, it's easier if I just pursue my own thing than follow you. I know it's not right. I know in my heart, me talking about this to this person, I know this isn't right because your word says it, but you know what? It's just easier right now. I know that pursuing after this sin, I know it's not right, but right now, it's getting me what I need and what I want. We never say that. But if we're honest, how much of us, that's, that's why we're pursuing it. Jesus, it's easier to pursue my own thing. Now, ultimately, pursuing our own agenda above Jesus leads to this. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet... None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, you guys don't keep the law that you accuse me of breaking. I heal a guy on the Sabbath, and you're upset about that? He says, you think I'm demon-possessed because I know what you're thinking? When he says, people want to kill me? Like, wait a minute, how did you know that people are looking to kill you? You must be demon-possessed. And and the one thing the Pharisees wanted, here's the crazy thing about this, the one thing the Pharisees wanted, they were all hoping for a Messiah. They were searching for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah. Here he is, and they say, nope. Why? What they know is better, a Messiah coming, is competing with their agenda of power. With all the things going on in Israel right now, I've been doing just a lot more study on, on Israel and what's happening and what's happened in the past and all the political stuff. I've just been kind of interested in it. Here's one thing I was just hearing uh, just this week. Um, at the Wailing Wall, if you've ever been to Israel, there's the Wailing Wall. It's just a sacred place in Jerusalem. It's the last remaining piece of the old temple, right? And, and three times a day, Jewish religious people and just Jews will come and pray at that wall for the temple to be rebuilt. Here's what one person was saying, though, that, that if the temple gets rebuilt, right now the rabbis are the spiritual authority in Israel. If the temple's rebuilt, the rabbis no longer have authority. The priests, the Levite priests, would then be reinstated, and they would have all the authority and, and influence religiously and, and then politically. So the person I was listening to said that in the last 20 or 30 years, there have been times when, like right now, they, they can't build a temple because Muslims occupy that area. They're not going to let them build a temple, right? But, but there have been times where it looked like there was a chance where the temple could be rebuilt. Do you know who stopped it time and time again? It was the rabbis. They would put pressure politically to not, have, the thing they desired the most, they're saying, mm, maybe not. Just like here, the thing they desired the most, a Messiah would come. They said, mm, maybe not. We want it, but if we accept this, it's, it's going to take us to humble ourselves. The very thing they pray for, they're now in opposition of. It's going to cost them. Listen, I say this a lot. There's only one doorway to Jesus. It just happens to be a very low door where we humble ourselves and say, I lay down all of my power, all of my wants. I'm following you, Jesus. I'm not writing up a contract saying, this is my life. I'll sign here. Now, Jesus, you sign it as well. No, God hands us back the contract that's blank. He says, just sign your name on this. I've got your life. Our students right now at youth are working their way through Philippians. In Philippians 3, Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, the worth of knowing him. He says, for this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them all as rubbish, as garbage, as dung. Paul's saying, I have agendas, I have motivations, but in comparison to Jesus, they always come second, a distant second. And if I lose everything, I'm still okay because I have Jesus. Look at verse 25. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and where when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. 
They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Jesus is saying, hey, you're saying I can't be the Messiah because I come from Nazareth. He goes, I am the Messiah. I come from God. Makes the religious leaders angry. And, and yet some of them are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe he is the Messiah. It's got to be. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief, chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Listen, Jesus will eventually complete his mission on the cross and the resurrection, and returning to glory. And he's saying to these religious leaders, you don't believe that I've come from the Father, that I am God the Son, so you can't go where I'm going. You can't bring your religious agenda and go to where I'm going. And then look at what Jesus does in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John says, now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to, believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's something of the Feast of Booths. It was more than just people living in tents, remembering wandering in the wilderness. They're also remembering the time when they had this desperate need for water. They're in the wilderness, and God tells Moses, strike this rock and water will come out. So every day in this festival, what they would do is a priest would go to the pools of, of Siloam. He would, they would draw out water. They'd put the water in a golden pitcher. They would have this procession to the temple, people all falling behind, singing out Isaiah 12, with joy you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what they're doing day after day after day. And finally, on the last day, Jesus has to speak out. And it says here, he didn't just talk, he cried out. This isn't Jesus just teaching quietly, giving a three-point sermon. This is something building in Jesus' heart, so important. He yells it out. I'm that rock. I'm the living water. It's the key to what Christianity is all about. It's, it's not just a list of doctrines. It's not just a, a social thing that we do for the world. It's not just this pattern of ethical behavior and moral standards of upright living. At the core, it's knowing and loving and experiencing a relationship with Jesus. I mean, John says in verse 39, Jesus was talking about the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that wasn't coming until Jesus was glorified. Jesus had to die and raise again. And, and after that, we now, listen, as Christ followers, you have the presence of the Spirit in you. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people, descend on them, and they did amazing things when the Spirit came upon them. You think of Gideon and Samson and David, and, and, and the Spirit was upon them. Moses tells God, we don't want to go forward unless your presence, your Spirit goes with us. I need your Spirit with me. And now, listen, this is unbelievable. After the cross and the resurrection, and Jesus ascends back to the Father, there's this monumental shift, and now the Spirit of God doesn't just come on us for a special task. In Christ, you have the Spirit in you. 
the presence of God, the power of God, the reality of the Spirit of God in you. That's what Jesus is saying. I have that. I am that for you. For those who trust in his death and his resurrection, you have the presence of God in you, with you, in a way that even the Old Testament greats never had. Here's how that convicted me this week. If that's true, how do I get away with making excuses for any mediocrity in my life? Knowing that the Spirit of God is in those who know Jesus, how do we get away with excusing our tiny expectations? How do I get away with excusing the fact that I'm always overwhelmed and ruled by my problems, ruled by my fears? Jesus is saying, listen, listen, if you have the Spirit, the Spirit will show you who I am. I think of it this way, the Spirit of God, all the things the Spirit can do. We can talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We can talk about all of that. And yet, yet what, what I'm seeing so clearly here is that the Spirit is like the spotlight on Jesus, pointing to Jesus so we can see Jesus over our agendas, over our fears, over our worries. You ever been in a, a dark theater and you can't really see anything? You kind of see shadows moving around, then all of a sudden, boom, that spotlight comes on and shines on that one person on the stage. And now you can't see anybody else, but you can see that one person. When the Spirit of God is working in your life, listen, Jesus will be in full view. You'll see him as your king, as your treasure, as your hope, as your life. You see him as the author and perfecter of your faith. You see him as the prize at the end of the road. All of our agendas fade into the dark. All of our agendas submitted to Jesus. Why? Because there's this living water now in us. Water that renews, water that revives, water that gives life, water that quenches our longings. So, so that our agendas now have, and our, and our motivations find new hope in Jesus. I mean, think about the agendas we were talking about at the beginning of this message. It's good to want to be healthy. But when you see Jesus fully, your hope's no longer in your physical body. It's good to desire good relationships, but when you see Jesus fully, you, you no longer need the approval of everyone because you have the love and the approval of the king of the universe. You can take criticism. You don't have to always be searching for and fishing for affirmation anymore. You're free. Why? Because the love of God became a thirst-quenching reality in your life. Our worries and our fears are quieted. Why? Because the wisdom of God looks so much greater than our wisdom. God, I don't understand why you're doing this, but I trust you have wisdom beyond my understanding. Not only does the living water of the Spirit renew, it also cleans. You see, in Jesus' day, when he's saying, I am that water, I mean, think of what that means to the people of Israel. He's saying, in the desert where water is so important for life, I'm that water. But not only did they drink water, the Jews would go through a ceremonial bath to cleanse themselves, this religious act going under the water. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, that's me now. It's not an outward thing anymore. The Spirit now brings new life from the inside out. That, that when, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, he begins to clean house. The pride, the selfishness, the greed, the self-pity, the dishonesty, things before that you were okay living with, now not so okay. Why? Because there's sanctification happening as the Spirit's at work. And so, so maybe, listen, I would say this, maybe this week, maybe this week you need to grab some people who know you best and say, do you see the Spirit at work in my life? Am I less worried than I used to be? Am, am I less self-pitying than I used to be? 
Do I have more integrity than I used to have? Do, am, I, am I more loving than I used to be? Am I more approachable and humble than I was? Am, am I changing? And maybe ask this too, because Jesus says this water will flow out of you. Am I bringing life to others? We're not just filled with the Spirit. We're filled to the point of overflowing, is what Jesus says. Am I a fountain for people or am I a drain on people? As we close, here's, here's the last question. How, how do we get this amazing living water? How do you get this presence of God in your life? Well, the Festival of Booths really gives us an answer why Jesus links himself to this festival like he did in the Passover festival. He's now doing it again. They're celebrating what happened in, in Exodus 17. In the wilderness, people are complaining to God. You don't care about us. You're not taking care of us. How are we ever going to make it through this wilderness? And they don't trust God to take care of their needs. They then turn their anger on Moses. It's your fault too, Moses. You're the one leading us. And they wanted to kill Moses. And so God says to the people, okay, Moses, take your rod and the elders. Let's go over to this rock here. Now, you have to understand what's happening. There are the elders. People would recognize what's going on. Wait a minute. We have the elders coming as witnesses, the rod, which, which is this symbol of judgment. So, so it seems like God's like, okay, let's put Moses on trial then. Like, that's what I'd be thinking if I'm in the multitude. Great. Finally, Moses is going to pay for his bad leadership. But in reality, what God's doing is he's putting the people on trial for their rebellion against him. They deserve to be put to death. They get to the rock, and God shocks everybody. He says, Moses, I will stand before you on the rock. Then put the elders around, take the rod, and hit the rock. Hit it. He's saying, strike me. Moses hits the rock. Water comes pouring out. The people are saved. Jesus now shouting at the, this festival saying, that's me. I'm the rock. I'll be punished for your rebellion, for your sin. And because I'm going to take the penalty in your place on the cross, God's wrath poured out on me, you're going to get the blessings. You get the rewards. I love this because God's saying this. He's saying, listen, none of us need to be little Indiana Joneses looking for the, the water of life. I've got to get a map. I've got to achieve all these tasks. If I do the tasks right, then hopefully I get to it. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, no, no, I am that for you. I've completed all of the tasks on your behalf. And he doesn't say, go find the water. What's he say? He says, come. As the worship team comes up, when Jesus says, come, who's he saying come to? Who gets to come and get this living water, this water that changes everything? It says in Revelation 22 that, that, that sinners can't get into heaven, and it lists a bunch of sinners saying, these people aren't making it. Well, then how then? Like, like, who gets in? Revelation twenty two seventeen says this. It doesn't say it's the perfect. It's the ones who don't do this. You know what it says? It says, let the one who is thirsty come. Jesus says the same thing. Come all who are thirsty, come and drink. What's it mean to be a thirsty person? A thirsty person doesn't have anything. A thirsty person admits their emptiness. A thirsty person comes saying, I can't do this on my own. A thirsty person comes saying, I know Jesus is better. A thirsty person is the one who lays down their agendas. Why? Because they come thirsty. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew, he says, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into heaven before you. Why? Why? Because they're thirsty. They know they have nothing but Jesus.
this morning, what, what agendas are competing in your life? Are there things that have gotten out of order in your heart? And I pray that we continue to be a church that it's okay to admit we're not okay. And then with grace and hearts on fire, we'd go after Jesus with everything we've got. Where we would say, yeah, this is disordered right now in my life. I need to change this. And we'd come alongside each other and we'd say, hey, let's go and go after the water that brings life. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, that begins with coming thirsty saying, I have nothing to offer but my sin. Jesus, I believe that when you died on the cross and you said it is finished, that that counted for me. And so this morning, I'm saying, Jesus, I, I want you. I need that. I need you. I lay down my doubts. I lay down my fears. I lay down all the things I'm trying to do on my own. And I say, Jesus, I want to follow you. If you are a Christ follower, my question again is what needs to be adjusted this morning? What agenda needs to be put in its rightful place? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I, th I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that you pursued us to the point of taking our sin to the cross. God, I pray that even in the, in the clumsiness of my words this morning, that your, your spirit would smooth it over. And by your grace, you, you would be speaking to our hearts. You would be drawing every person here towards you, Father. Whatever it is that's holding us back, whatever agenda is keeping us from fully trusting you, I pray we'd come and drink. God, I pray for those who are hurting, that you would, be, you would show yourself so clearly. God, would your presence, would your spirit illuminate you so much that we could see you, that, that we'd be able to keep moving forward. I pray that when we see you, Lord Jesus, that your spirit would be doing a work to identify those things in our life that might be out of order, that we'd be so quick to talk about that. We'd be so quick to bring that to repentance because it's been covered by the cross. Lord God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. I pray that you bring change in our hearts even today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.